Welcome to Factum Agri, dedicated to the primary industry. Working with the Rural Support Trust, each week I talk with farmers, growers, industry professionals and policy makers to hear their stories and expert opinions on matters relevant to both our rural and urban communities. 14 April 2021, the New Zealand Agriculture Minister has announced that all livestock exports from New Zealand by sea will be banned by 2023. The industry, which has accounted for 0.2% of New Zealand's primary sector export revenue since 2015, will be wound down over the next two years. The Minister says, and I quote, I acknowledge the economic benefit some farmers get from the trade, but I also note that support of it is not universal within the sector, unquote. In 2019, the trade was worth $77 million. Since 2015, an average of 60,000 cattle have been exported each year, with 113,000 being exported in 2020. This is an interesting decision, and one that I feel has been made too lightly. This will be the end of some export businesses and put further pressure on many farmers. This won't improve animal welfare either, as the market will simply turn to other nations that have far worse animal welfare standards than our own. Perhaps we are missing an opportunity here to lead the world in live animal exports. I think this would add to the overall story we are aiming to send to the world. I think this could have been explored further rather than culling an industry. It is a topic that has split farmers for some time, and I think the live export industry deserved the opportunity to improve standards. There is also the argument that selling live animals offshore allows competitors to take advantage by developing their herds. But the bottom line is, countries will simply shop elsewhere. We have to be careful in this country not to stifle the very industry that keeps us ticking along, which is our farmers and growers. Last year, I talked with Professor David Norton from the University of Canterbury, and we focused on biodiversity and farm plans. David understands the importance of nurturing both our farming businesses and equally the environment in which our farmers live and work. Have a listen to the interview as it opens the door to supporting farmers rather than cutting our most important industry off at the knees. Hello, David, and thank you for talking with me today. Oh, look, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Please tell me a bit about the work that you do. Yeah, so I work at the University of Canterbury. I'm a professor there. I've been working there for 35-odd years now. And um, my interests, um, particularly in the last decade or or so, have really focused around how we can manage production systems, whether it be um, production forestry or or production as in farming. How can we manage um, production systems in a way that also gets good um, biodiversity conservation outcomes. So re- really thinking about the fact that native plants and animals don't just occur in national parks and reserves, they're, they're throughout the landscape, and really looking for ways that we can get win-win outcomes is the expression I like to use for farming uh, and for biodiversity conservation. And that, that sort of theme runs through my research, it runs through my teaching, it runs through the consultancy work I do as well. What is a farm biodiversity plan? Many people may have heard of the term, but don't necessarily have an understanding of what one is. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a really good question. And I think to answer it, it's worth taking a step back because to me, there, there are sort of two parts to it, really. I think for farmers, it, it's important um, that farmers recognise that there is native biodiversity, native plants and animals occur across rural New Zealand. We, we did some work for beef and lamb a couple of years ago where we showed, showed that 25% of all of the native um, vegetation in New Zealand is on sheep and beef farms and about 17% of all the native forest in New Zealand is on sheep and beef farms. Mm. So there's a lot of native vegetation out there. And I think, you know, the, the first challenge for farmers is simply knowing what's there, but knowing what's there isn't isn't the whole story. We actually need to then think about, well, okay, if we've got you know, a patch of native bush, a standard beach, or there's uh, bellbirds or, or cattaroo utilising the property, how do we um, manage those values within the context of the actual farming operation? And so I guess a biodiversity plan is, is really the tool that a farmer would use to be able to then say, okay, well, I've got these values present. Um, this is how I'm going to um, incorporate it into my farm management. Mm. So I guess it's providing a framework for the farmer to prioritise what they might do around native biodiversity. Is a farm biodiversity plan mandatory or voluntary and how do farmers go about developing a plan? Yeah, so at the moment, they're not mandatory, um, except in, in particular circumstances. So in some councils, the so Hiranui District Council would be one example, uh, Christchurch City for Banks Peninsula, Kenzie District Council um, down in South Canterbury. There'd be three examples in the Canterbury region where, where councils are saying to farmers, if you want to do certain activities, so it might be carnica clearance, uh, it might be um, over-sowing, top-dressing a, a native grassland block, then you have to have a biodiversity plan or we won't consider your, your application, won't give you a consent. Mm. Um, but for anything else, it, it's still voluntary. And I think we're, we're at the moment, we're in a sort of a transitional um, phase between being voluntary to becoming more and more likely to become mandatory across New Zealand. Um, so that answers the first part of your question. I think you also said, you know, how does a farmer go about developing a plan? That, that's a really interesting question. And, and I think at the moment, the expectation is that farmers will get on and do it um, themselves. Um, I don't think councils are necessarily offering to do it. Some councils provide a, an indication of what the contents of a plan should look like, but I think the expectation is that a, a farmer will write it themselves or they'll get a consultant in to write it for them. I actually think that that's, that may work in some situations, but I actually think the best way to do plans, particularly when they become um, much more generally required, would be for groups of farmers, so land care groups or catchment groups, getting together, mm. sharing costs by, by bringing a facilitator in with expertise, sharing costs that way, but also forming effectively a, a reference group for each other and developing plans, um, not necessarily together, but in a group so that they can share experiences and knowledge and, and as I say, can also share costs. So I think that's what I'd like to see happen over the next four or five years, as I, I, I think we'll see a lot more requirements for, for plans for farmers to produce them. I agree. Just on the cost side of things, what financial support does a farmer receive to execute physical aspects of a biodiversity plan? And are these areas mostly carried out on an effective land? Okay, well, again, there's two quite interesting parts to that question. So I guess on the cost side of things, at the moment, um, councils, different councils provide different levels of support. It depends on where you are and what the council's priorities are. So fencing, for example, is something that a number of councils will support with. And again, um, to some degree, councils might provide some support around plant or animal pest control, weed control, possum control. It would depend on the local situation. But I think 
at the moment, um, there is still a, a general expectation that farmers would also be contributing to quite a bit of the, the cost work because um, you know there are also benefits to the farmers farmer doing it as well as benefits to the council. Mm. I think, and of course, you know the, the world has changed rapidly over the last few months. Um, mm. Before mm. COVID became an issue, um, I was of the view that I think we we were likely to see an increasing amount of support and certainly um, something I've been lobbying for with government is more support for farmers and actually doing this work. Difficult to know what's going to be around the corner. But I mean, things like one billion trees, um, you know, while they've had a lot of bad press around putting pine trees in the wrong place, they also support native planting. So there's funding there for native planting, funding for fencing and things like that. It's hard to know what's, you know, post-COVID-19 New Zealand's going to be like. A farmer might have some flats and some hill country. Are they mostly uh, utilising that hill country? Or does it really depend on what the farm landscape looks like in general? Yeah, I think the, the latter is, is the answer. Look, every, every farm is different. Um, some farms, you know, will have a couple of gullies that are really scrubby with a bit of bush in them and, and you know, good bellbird populations and the like. And in that case, they're probably very low value from a purely production point of view. But I guess the way I look at it is that, to me, I actually don't like the idea of saying that biodiversity only occurs in non-productive parts of the farm and therefore we'll just separate it off from the productive parts of the farm. Mm. To me, the biodiversity actually adds a whole lot of value to the farming operation. Now, some of that value is direct, so you know, scattered beech trees or totara trees through a paddock provide shelter and shade, but they also provide stepping stones for native birds to move across a paddock between, say, larger patches of native bush. A wetland is really important for sediment retention as well as being really important habitat for native biodiversity. But I mean, you know, I, I do quite a bit, bit of work of high country farmers and, and the Merino Company, and of course, you know, native biodiversity is an important part of the whole marketing story of our fine wools. Um, and and I, I really think that as New Zealand farming moves into this, this, into the future, and this is irrespective of COVID nineteen. Mm. I, I, I really believe we, we're going to have to more and more actually prove that our our clean, green, environmental story is what we are doing. So native biodiversity is going to be part of how we market our farm product, whether it's red meat or, or wool or, or any other product. So I think you know we actually need to look at biodiversity as not necessarily being something that occurs in that forgotten back corner of the farm. It may occur there, but it's also something that should actually be integral right across the whole farming operation. So natives and shelter belts, you know, wetlands that serve multiple functions, um, maintaining stepping stones, and even exotic plants can be really important for native biodiversity. You know? we, we know that around farms that um, homestead gardens are often full of bellbirds. Kateru come there because they're feeding on the exotic trees. Well, that, that's also part of biodiversity. Mm. So, so to me, yeah, I don't like the idea of separating it out necessarily. And he says what you're saying is that it adds to the overall value or the overall picture in terms of a marketing proposition that we are sending to the world as being of high value, low impact primary industry. Yeah, I think I think that's part of the story and it's an important part of the story. But as I said, there are also values in that biodiversity to the farm itself. And, and you know, for example, lambing, uh, some of the best lambing blocks in New Zealand are blocks that, that have got native biodiversity in them, tussocks mm. or matagari, for example, in the South Island here. So, so you know, there are those direct economic benefits. They're the less direct ones like marketing. But then there's also the whole thing about, you know, our 
our sense of where we belong. I mean, you know, most Kiwis, farmers or not farmers, you know, recognise cabbage trees as part of what makes New Zealand New Zealand. So hearing bellbirds calling or, or, or tui or, or, or kereru, you know, that, they're yes. all sort of part of what, what makes New Zealand New Zealand. So I think it's quite a broad range of things. And I also believe that as custodians of the land and, and every farmer I've dealt with looks at themselves as stewards of this land and, and looks at, and they all say to me, I've worked with a lot of farmers over the years, and they all say to me, I want to hand this on in a better condition to my kids or whoever comes after me than, than it is now. And part of that is maintaining that biodiversity as well. What are the current engagement levels like with biodiversity plans and how many are progressing? Mm. That again sort of follows on from your earlier question about are they volunteer or are they um, mm. mandatory? I mean, I think we, we're really at a time of rapid change. So Beef and Lamb um, launched there and Beef and Lamb New Zealand launched the environment strategy two years ago now and in that strategy they said they wanted to have every single sheep and beef farm in New Zealand would have a, a what they call a next generation um, farm environment plan or farm plan that would include carbon, water, soil and biodiversity mm-hmm. um, and that was by 2021. Um, you know, We're seeing a national policy statement somewhere in the wings and may or may not go ahead and that would certainly I think see most councils requiring farmers to have some degree of farm biodiversity plan. So I think at the moment, engagement's quite low because people are, well, farmers have been absolutely bombarded over the last you know, couple of years with freshwater reforms and carbon taxing and now with biodiversity. But I think, you know, irrespective of, of that, and, and I think, you know, people are sort of saying, wow, you know. <laughs> um, but I think we are going to see, um, you know, a rapid upswing. But at the moment, it's really low. I mean, I've written plans for half a dozen high country farmers. I've worked with a couple of other farmers in hill country, but I, I sense there's a lot of interest. But I think people are also just saying, well, let's just see what the next steps are going to be with, with government. I come back though, I make the point that beef and lamb itself is saying, you know they're recognising. You look at the um, the new um, the red meat profit partnership, the new farm farm assurance standard, which the, the new one that's in the process of coming out now. You look at a company like the Merino Company with their ZQ um, environmental standard. You know farm management planning that includes biodiversity is going to be fundamentally important to this country in the next two or three years. Why is such a plan important for New Zealand's landscape, and what issues do they address? Okay, well, there's, there's two parts to that question as well. And in a sense, the, the first part, we sort of discussed a little bit already. I mean, there are a number of benefits for, for farms themselves and things like shelter, erosion, timber, honey, um, shade, you know, marketing, all those sorts of things, that, that whole social licence to operate side of it. That's certainly important. But equally, you know, we can only conserve Kereru or Rimu or Mountain Beach in New Zealand. They don't occur anywhere else in the world. And one of the really interesting things and some work we did with Beef and Lamb a couple of years ago, um, where we looked at what was on sheep and beef farms, is that in a lot of New Zealand, in North Canterbury and Northland and Gisborne and the Wairapa, most of the remaining biodiversity is not on public conservation land. It's not in National Parks and Reserve. Most of what remains is in farmland. Mm. So if we're to conserve those things that are uniquely in New Zealand, we're going to have to um, manage them within a farming landscape. And and again, I'll come back to this whole idea that underpins what we do. It's it's about, we now need to find win-win outcomes. And I guess that's what the management plan does is it provides the framework to try and address those nationally important values, those values that are important to farming, um, those values that are important to our culture, our heritage, because it's the right thing to do to look after biodiversity. So a biodiversity management plan then provides a framework or a tool to assist you as a farmer to then actually manage that biodiversity. 
and this sort of leads into the second part of your question. And I think one of the things that really worries me is that some farmers might look at their farms and say, yep, I've got a remnant over there, I've got Matagari through a paddock there, I've got a few tussocks up on the ridge there, I've got this wetland here and this riparian margin there, and think, oh my God, how am I going to look after all that? We're looking at tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm. And, and I think, you know, having a plan, it's, it's, it's not rocket science, is it? It's really just a way to say, okay, what are the values? Mm. Um, what are the things I'm already doing? What are some of the things I might be able to do? How can I maybe stage those over a number of years? Because I mean, you know, it's totally unrealistic to expect a farmer is going to suddenly convert a farm into some, um, you know, well, to do all the fencing overnight. I mean, it takes time. I mean, mm. um, you know, and to me, the management plan is, is, is in a sense a tool that helps a farmer, one, understand what they've got, work out what their priorities are, where do they want to go with biodiversity on their farm, making sure they're aware of what the district and regional priorities might be around you know, significant natural areas and, and things like that. Then sitting down and saying, okay, well, here's my goal for maybe 20, 30 years time. What can I realistically do over the next five years? And then what can I realistically do each year as stepping stones towards working my way towards a goal? So to me, um, management plan is, is, is really, really important as a way to actually break down what's quite a large, complex and potentially overwhelming issue for a farmer into a manageable chunk of work that fits in with everything else on the farm, with the livestock, with the pastures, with with all the other issues that, that a farmer is, is dealing with. And, and ideally in a reasonably integrated manner. I mean, in my mind, you know, making a decision about fencing off a wetland also has to think about weed control. What what if there's blackberry in that wetland? So maybe we want to exclude cattle but not exclude sheep. And it's mm. trying to incorporate it all together. Mm. And I guess one, one other really important component of all of us and, and in the work that we've been doing in the post-quake farming project around biodiversity plans, is it to put in place some form of monitoring, even if it's just photo points, so that you as a farmer can show somebody, whether it's you know a, a, um, a red meat company or whether it's a council or whether it's some other group that's got an interest in what you're doing, you can say, actually, this is what it'll look like when I started this work. Here's the same photograph taken three or four years on. And you can actually see that the tussocks look just as healthy or you can see where I fenced it off and the bush has thickened up or, or whatever it is that, that the farmer has done. So that plan should also include um, monitoring. I think that's really, really important. So it's a very long answer. <laughs> no, there's some great thoughts there. I thank you very, very much for your time today, David, and all the best. You're, you're welcome there. When you consider what farmers have had thrusted upon them, in the last 12 months. The Freshwater Policy Statement, Biodiversity, National Policy Statement for Indigenous Biodiversity, Climate Change and Emission Reduction Targets, now the banning of live exports. Farmers, you could be forgiven for asking the question, when is it all going to end? Farmers, I salute you and the importance of your existence in this great country of ours. Without you, we have very little and there needs to be greater acknowledgement of that. When I reflect on what is currently being asked of our farmers, it is quite extraordinary and leads me to a quote from Dwight Eisenhower. You know, farming looks mighty easy when your plough is a pencil and you're a thousand miles from a cornfield. Thank you for listening and catch you next time on Factum Agri.